Hey everybody, you're listening to Raw with Marty Gallagher, J.P. Bryce, and Jim Steele, brought to you by IronCompany.com. So today we've got a special guest. We've got in John Wellborn, and he's played uh, 10 years in the NFL, including the Philadelphia Eagles, Kansas City Chiefs, and the New England Patriots. Uh, he's also the owner of Power Athlete. So welcome to the show here, John. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, all right, so Jim Steele, our beloved co-host here, uh, you guys have some history together, so tell us, uh, tell us how you guys met and, and how, uh, how uh, um, you guys got together. I've seen you guys together on uh, different podcasts and things like that, so how did, how did it all begin between you guys? Um... I think the way that it all started, and I could be wrong on this, but uh, I, I started the blog when I retired from the NFL. I was approached uh, by CrossFit about helping them develop their technology on how to train athletes. And um, I came in and worked with them for about nine years. And after about six months, not even that long, maybe three months of working with CrossFit, um, I didn't realize how, I guess, uh, strength deprived or really just strength uneducated people were. Yeah. Um, and just the amount of volume of questions I was receiving um, just necessitated me starting a blog. So one of my favorite movies is Rambo First Blood. And so I started a blog called Talk to Me, Johnny. Um, that's, that's funny. I was just where, watching that the other night. <laughs> yeah, still one of my favorite movies. Yeah. So I started this blog, Talk to Me, Johnny, uh, which is actually plays off of another kind of, I don't know, just funny story. Um, I had a guy that I played with who was from Philly, um, but he played for the Indianapolis Colts, guy named Brad Schioli. And uh, Brad grew up in, you know, I, I want to say like Conshohocken, like King of Prussia area, if you guys know the Philly area. And, uh, you know, as soon as the season was done with Indianapolis, he would come back to, you know, to Philly in the area. And I'd always get this like funny, cryptic, you know, voicemail from him that was like, you know, Coven leader to Raven, you know, talk to me, Johnny, which was like <laughs> this funny thing. And it went on for years. And so it just kind of just became yeah. kind of our shtick. And uh, so I started this blog, Talk to Me, Johnny. And I started just answering questions like and it was, um, you know, both educational and humor and people just started submitting stuff. And I wrote uh, one of the blogs um, answering a question. And then I got an email from Jim Steele kind of unsolicited like, hey, uh, I'm a writer and uh, man, I really enjoy this stuff. I wish you put out more of it. And I think that was uh, really like the first interaction we had. And of course, I looked up and figured out who he was. And, um, you know, and the kind of lapsing is that I used to live on 25th and Locust and had a view of Franklin Field uh, when I lived in Philly. And he was a strength coach at Penn. So I just think it's hilarious that I was, you know, straight across the river right there, right off the skook uh, where he was at. So um, that's how it started. And um, wasn't the, the, I think the article was Zangus's garage. Yeah. And so I was like, man, because that got me all fired up, especially <clears throat> was this thing that coffee should be so thick. What was it? What did he say? Black coffee. Yeah, yeah. He he said uh, you you knew the coffee was ready when the spoon stood up. Yeah. And um, the the hilarious part was George would uh, make this fucking vat of um, like sludge type like coffee, and he would pour it in these cups. And like I'm like 14, 15 years old, and I'm like kind of looking around because I never drink coffee, and like this stuff is like uh, like a milkshake almost. And it's hot and it's like, it's just, you taste the grounds. And uh, I had this like aversion to drinking coffee. I thought it was like the most disgusting thing, yeah. but we choked it down because George would look over. He's like, you need more coffee? And he'd be like, yeah. <laughs> and um, so I never drank coffee. 
I didn't drink coffee through through college. Uh, I didn't drink coffee even my like maybe my first couple years in the NFL. And it wasn't until I remember one time I came in and Mike Wolf was like, hey, man, let's go get a coffee. Who was our strength coach at the Eagles at the time. And I was like, ah, I've been a big coffee drinker. And he's like, dude, you live in Philly. You're in the Northeast. Yeah. You got to drink coffee. So we yeah. went over and I was like, man, this coffee stuff's pretty good. And he's like, what kind of coffee were you drinking? And I told him the story and he's like, ooh, uh, that's not coffee. I don't know what that is, but that's not coffee. So no. Marty, drink ever since. Marty, did you have a connection to Zangus in your powerlifting? Uh, yeah, George was kind of on and off the scene before I got on it. He, uh, now, what part of California were you guys from? He was L.A., right? Yeah, Southern California, Palos Verdes. Palos Verde, right, 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 right. And again, uh, the West Coast guys that George mentored, let me see, you had Terry McCormick, right? Mm-hmm. And Dave Shaw. Uh, I'm trying to think of some of those other West Coast guys back at that era. Estep and those guys, right? They're all California guys, I think. Yeah, Roger, Roger relocated. He was originally from West Virginia, but he really, he really, he relocated out there and i know he kind of floated around uh so george of course he was the he got in on the front part of the super suit revolution and yeah man best yeah, he had, ever, uh, ever. I, I i gotta disagree with you on that because he made really? us wear those things and man oh, God. I hear, no, no, they were horrible oh yeah. i bleed i think to make me bleed yeah. My no they were horrible Oh yeah, no. He uh, he. You know, um, I started wearing the suit inside out uh, because the seams were so aggressive. And I remember being like, "He's like, hey, your suit's inside out." I'm like, "Yeah, I fucking know." Like it was like, uh, like we were trying to wear like spandex underneath it because it would tear up your crotch so bad. But uh, yeah, I mean, he he was. Uh, I guess he held the patent on those super suits and those wraps and was really one of the first guys. So I mean, I I know he uh, he worked a bunch with Kaz and um, I remember him talking about Doug Young and. Yeah, uh, just a lot of these uh, these guys that he had sponsored through Marathon Nutrition. Yeah, he was the first. Yeah, Marathon Nutrition too, right? He was in on that. Now, John, we've got well, a that man- was his whole company. I mean, that was his whole deal. I mean, he yeah. pioneered all that mail order stuff. So, I mean, yeah. pr- pretty interesting. He he was in on the front end with uh, another guy named Rio H. Blair. Oh yeah, with the protein stuff. Yeah, protein. <laughs> but now, John, we've got to caution you. This is a this is a, a Disney rated show. We can't can't keep dropping the f bomb. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you, did, you, didn't right. know, you didn't know any better. Well, Marty and I didn't know that for a while either, John. And no, so we, no. we didn't have an episode that got aired. Because you, know, of you, know, John, <laughs> you know, John, it took me six months to get these guys trained. And I'm like, oh, uh, you know, you know, John, John, you know what uh, General George S. Patton once said? He said, <laughs> an, an army run without profanity could not fight its way out of a piss-soaked bag. Yeah. And that's true uh, because Marty Marty heard that firsthand. So, yeah, uh, here we go. Well, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's Marty's done, They've Marty. done pretty expensive research that shows that people that use profanity tend to have dramatically higher IQs than people that don't. That. I've read that too. Well, so, yeah, I mean, you ought yeah. to hear all of us off of this thing. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> sound like a bunch of hell's angels. Well, I, I, I don't care about the intellectual part, but you know, obviously, <laughs> in the in in our world of of hardcore athletics, I mean, well, you do have a couple. Of, you do have a couple of Christian guys, you know, sprinkled in, and you know, God bless those guys. They don't even cuss, you know, like. Well, we we all know. Yeah, we all know hardcore, hardcore Christian athletes. God bless them. 
Love was them. that your introduction to lifting, John, going to Zangus's garage, or were you lifting before then? No, that was uh, kind of my first introduction. You know, I, I got into lifting weights because uh, my brothers were all big, strong dudes, and I remember uh, my brother Eddie used to make fun of me. He used to take, like, a pencil and put it on, like, an orange on top and be like, this is your neck. So I would, uh, I, I wanted to start lifting weights. And so, um, I asked my dad about it and my dad's like, no, that's a waste of time. That's what idiots do. They just counting to 10 over and over again. How old were you then? Uh, 13 years old, 12 or 13. Okay. You know, that's, and, uh, that's pretty much what my dad said too. He said, oh, that's for wussies and all that. And I said, oh yeah, no. sit down here on this bench press. We're going to have a contest. And at f- 14, I think I was, you know, quite a bit stronger than he was. I was only lifting for probably six months but i said well a wussy just beat you on the bench press anyway so but yeah i didn't have any support so it didn't sound like you had much support with that at home well my my older brothers lifted weights for football and um my dad was uh just super smart like graduated high school at like 16 years old and then graduated college at 20 and then was a you know full practicing attorney by the time i think he was 22 or 23 and then he practiced for 55 years as a defense attorney in L.A. So he's huh. super sharp dude. I remember in college him um, – I, I called him once and I was taking a political science class and we were discussing like fear in America and McCarthyism. And uh, he started like, hey, there's a book. And he kind of like read it off to me. And I was like, when did you read that book? He's like 1974. Yeah. And so just really sharp. But he was like, you know, idiots lift weights. It's count to 10 over and over again. And I told him, I was like, dad, you know what? I think this lifting weights thing is going to be important to me. And um, so he didn't support me in it. And my mom ended up uh, dropping me off. Like I, I got a ride and I went to like some Gold's gym with like, you know, they had like a you know $19 membership. So I went in there. I didn't know anything. I just kind of watched what the big dudes were doing. And it was pretty awful. And then when I got to high school, we went into this weight room with one straight with one football coach hand, you know, wrote up, uh, I, rem- I still remember the first program we did was, uh, the Russian squat program, you know, the six, two, six, three, and that Zangus had given them. And, uh, they wrote it on a whiteboard and basically the coach went into his room to, I don't know, drink coffee or screw around or do whatever he did. And there was probably a hundred kids in there with lifting weights and, uh, no, no guidance. And, um, so I started lifting weights, uh, really poorly. And then about a year later, um, I got approached, you know, Zangus had a, you know, train in his garage um, and he would invite, you know, kids that he thought maybe had potential to do something, you know, to be a good football player, maybe go on and play college. And I was pretty tall. I was like six foot 165 when I was like 14. So I was pretty tall and, you know, decent build. And uh, he invited me to come over there and lift weights. And really that I remember the first day I showed up, um, I remember my dad dropped me off. Like my dad wasn't necessarily supportive, but he wasn't like it wasn't he was going to dig his heels in. He's like, OK, I'll drive you over there. So he drives me over, drops me off at like maybe like 10 in the morning. And I remember he's like, when, when should I come back? I'm like, noon. So yeah. uh, I show up and I, and I rack weights for three hours. So all these like big dudes are lifting weights and I'm like racking weights. And I remember my dad pulls up at like noon and I'm like, uh, I haven't lifted weights yet. And he's like, OK, I'll be back. He comes back at like two and probably about one thirty. Finally, those guys got done, and then we got to lift weights. So I just figured that was the way it worked. You just kind of hang out and watch and help those guys, and then you get to lift after. Well, you know, it's funny. We talk about mentors all the time, and Marty had that with, uh, you know, a series of them. But, you know, I don't know if you've heard the stories of Hugh Cassie's basement where where Marty and those guys grew up lifting, and Cassie, you know, gave you no quarter. And it was was just, I think, that may be missing a little bit now because now the kids pay for somebody to train them and it's like oh what do you need now what can i do for you you know instead mm-hmm. of they got stripes a little bit 
Yeah, we were talking to Dorian Yates about this. He said um, the the modern guys, they don't know how to train because they hire a trainer who does all the thinking for them. They're just like athletic robots. Yeah. And, yeah. And that's what started me off coaching, man, because I had such crappy coaches and I really wanted to learn. And, I, and, and once I started to learn, I was like, I don't want any kid to have to go through that again. Or, you yeah. know, that. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I did so much like some so many things wrong. I remember um, uh, I always was uh, it was kind of interesting when I was pretty young. Uh, I think I was in junior high school. I was always really fast. Like I was a fast runner and we had to do these timed runs. And, you know, I got like an A and P.E. and I crushed everything. And then I grew like four or five inches in one year. And I remember all of a sudden I wasn't fast anymore. And uh, all of a sudden, like, we're going out doing these timed runs, and I'm getting, like, C's and D's where I was getting A's before. And I was so mortified that uh, I was going to have to go home and show my mom that I didn't get an A and P.E. that I went and talked to the teacher. And I'm like, something's wrong. Like, is there anything extra I can do? And she's like, well, yeah, if you come every Friday, I'll let you do an extra run on Fridays uh, and get more points, which will help get your grade up. And I was like, okay. So I just told my mom, I had to, you know, hey, she's like, hey, what time do you pick you up or whatever? Like the bus left. And I was like, well, I need you to pick me up. I got to study late on Friday after school. And she's like, OK, I'll pick you up. And so I would do this extra run uh, every week to try to get my average up just because I was just embarrassed that I wasn't fast. And then when I went to high school, uh, I started lifting weights and like it was it was cool. Like every time I went to lift weights, when I went out to go run, I felt like I was better. I mean, now that I understand inter and intramuscular coordination and recoding and all the other you know, aspects of lifting weights. Um, but then I, but then when we went to winter conditioning after I played that first football season, it was like, today we're going to run 16 220s. And uh, we're going to do a two-mile run. And it was, it was like just this endurance stuff. And so I, I went and talked to our uh, football, like one of like the, um, the assistant coaches. And I was like, hey, can I join the track team? And he's like, yeah. And so I was like, I want to, I think I can run the hurdles. And so I went out and I ran the hurdles and they were like, well, you're not uh, fast enough, I think, to be able to do it, but we'll let you continue to run and train and do everything if you do like the shot and the disc. Right. So I was like, great, if I can get away. From, and, and even then I knew that like I was because I, I, I was, of course, like not like the dickhead kid. I'm sorry, my language. But like I wasn't the like rude kid where I was like, you know, why are we doing this? I was more like, hey, um, if the game of football is all based on speed and these short bursts, why are we going out and running two miles at a time? And then, like, the coach would get mad at me about it. And then, like, uh, like for me, I would I, I'd look and be like, wow, a general interest. Let's discuss this. Yeah. It's and um, so I, I joined the track team, and it was great because I got to run the hurdles, and I actually started sprinting and running. And, like, I, like, all of a sudden regained what I, what I had in terms of my speed. And then as I got stronger, I mean, I think the first day I went in and benched, I, I benched, like, 115, and then, I, you know, I benched – you know, 315 is a senior. I think I squatted like 185 and ended up squatting, you know, 450. So over the course of those four years, I went from like 165 up to probably 255. Yeah. So I gained like 90 pounds. I mean, I, um, the other joke I'll tell people is uh, Zangus gave me creatine in 1991, maybe 1990. Really? Yeah. So George came home with these boxes and said, hey, I want you to take a teaspoon of this twice a day. And so I'm probably the longest continuous creatine user on the planet. So there you go. All right. So let's drill down on some specifics. Okay. So John, when, when you started out, how much of that core training that you learned from George carried through with you for your athletic career? Did they try to talk you out of this stuff? Um, as, yeah. you got, as you got into the NFL, that, that it's a different, it's a different culture. 
Yeah, the um, I think as you grow, uh, the training that you did at one point has to adjust and train. Uh, there were some fundamental things in the way that George taught, like for you know, like there. Well, I'll tell you this: it becomes like I know this sounds kind of funny, but it almost becomes like a little bit of like a, a buffet or a cafeteria. Um, where I started picking and choosing what I found worked best for me. Like George had some really inherent, interesting, uh, you know, he would, what I call his observations, they were just kind of off the cuff, gruff comments that were kind of set in stone that there was really no negotiating. Like, um, and he used a lot of analogies, like uh, you train your deadlift like a pretty girl, you ignore it. So we would squat for three hours and go over and pull one or two deadlifts. And like he was like, you know, the way you build your deadlift is with your squat and like a ton of rowing and pulling and dips. And he had all these other like every single way to train the, you know, the, the mid back, the lats and all the other stuff yeah. other than deadlifting. And he's like, you know what? Like you train the deadlift like a, or he said you treat the deadlift like a pretty girl. You ignore it. Yeah. And, well, we, uh, we don't we don't agree with that. I, I'm just saying that was something that he went with. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, there's, there's a lot of those guys out there that they were like that back then. They're like, yeah, we don't uh, train the deadlift. Well, the deadlift is a highly complex lift that needs to be practiced. You don't magically all of a sudden do technically correct deadlifts because you do a lot of rows. Yeah, well, that was just one of his observations. And then yeah. the other one was uh, um, he always felt that, uh, you know, close grips, uh, like close grip bench had greater carryover into playing football. And he just um, and so I still yeah. this. Yeah, that, might, that makes sense. Right. You know, so I, I still close grip most yeah. of my stuff, and uh, some of my best lifts were his close grips. Uh, the other how, one. How said, did you find his like his squat technique? Was he did he spend a lot of time teaching you guys how to squat? Was oh, there yeah. any emphasis on depth? Was he good on depth? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so his comment was if uh, if you get done, or he said you should have splinters in your ass at the end of every workout. Right? Yeah, good, good for so, him. So oh, we, so we so we squatted deep. The only thing yeah. which I which I did not like. And I think ended up, I, I've since changed my thinking on this. And like, I didn't understand it until I went to college was, uh, he was real big on sitting back with a vertical shin and like a real flat pair of shoes. And yeah, uh, we like a vertical shin. We like an upright torso. We like squats where only the legs move. That's, yeah. uh, that's, that's the way that, uh, if but, you examine the world record holders, that's the archetypical squat technique. Sure. But that is probably the opposite of what you want for developing athleticism. How so? Uh, think about um, every movement you see from sprinting, running, anything that you see within the realm of sport usually involves the, a, a positive shin angle with the knee over the toe. And uh, when I transitioned into when I went to college, I had a strength coach named Todd Rice, who was a pure Olympic lifting coach. And like, man, we didn't power lift anymore. It was just snatch, clean and jerk, push, press and press squats. And uh, all of a sudden we started squatting in only shoes. I started getting more of a positive shin angle knee over the toe and not only my quad development, but my speed, my jumping and any issue of tendonitis that I had in my knee from doing a more vertical uh, squat uh, shin uh, just went away. And if you look at like, like the, you know, the function of the foot and athleticism and strengthening the foot and whatever, getting the big toe in the ground, uh, it just is pretty hard to refute that uh, a squat with a more positive shin angle that puts more drive on the front of the foot uh, allowing for more, uh, you know, and I'm not like a big advocate of like me super far in front of the toes with like a huge vertical torso, but just having more positive shin angle, uh, I think has greater carryover towards athleticism. We'll agree, we'll agree to disagree agreeably. Hey, hey, John, didn't you say that one thing you did did not like uh, was 
he used a lot of wraps. He used a lot of knee wraps when you were really, really young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He um he had us throw the knee wraps on pretty quick. Yeah, and uh, um I, I like it was uh like I mean I just remember like rapping for like two twenty five. Yeah, you know, and like it, to to me it was uh, like. I didn't necessarily understand why. I just knew that, like, they told, hey, you know, hey, throw those wraps on and this, and we wrapped way too tight. And I think um, it wasn't until I went to college when I, like, all of a sudden, like, you know, they didn't want us to wrap. They were like, ah, you know what, like, let's see what you can do. And all of a sudden, like, I don't think I developed that strength base. Like, hey, like, no belt, no wraps. Let me see how strong I can get. Um, and, and then, and so now even to this day. And then I kind of, when I went to college and, uh, cause I squatted, I squatted six ten with a set of wraps when I was 19. And then I benched 500 when I was 22. Yeah. Um, was, so, that raw, was that raw with the shirt? No, that was wrong. Great. With a pause. Good. Now, so, what, what, what did you weigh? Uh, I think I was about 306. Oh, you're a big guy then. Yeah. <laughs> so I, yeah, yeah, maybe 306, uh, 300 pounds. How, 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 how tall are you? I'm six six. So I was six four. Six six. Yeah. yeah so so yeah. I was six four when I went to college, and I grew probably two inches when I was in college. So I, I didn't even own a razor when I went to college. You had enough birth. What about the? Uh, I know Todd wasn't really big into bench pressing, and, and oh yeah. So I would sneak around. Yeah. So I I push pressed. I think it was like I want to say like 140 kilos for a triple because he wouldn't let us bench press. So then what we would do is we would leave and we'd go down to the RSF, which was like the student rec center. Yeah. And I would go in there and that's where I would do the bench and any of the upper, like any bench stuff was because he wouldn't allow me to bench. And, and what was I, the and, shoulder stuff or what was it? No, doing? he was just, you know, on the other side of the spectrum, you know, snatch, clean and jerk, push, press, front squat and uh, anything that looked like, uh, you know, and I hate to use the word non-functional because, I mean, that does, that's a misnomer. Right. Everything's functional. Um, he just, I, I think it was his way of, you know, raging against the machine in, in, in a certain way. And, uh, I remember, uh, you know, probably one thumb width off of the smooth close grip, you know, probably a good half second pause with a, you know, 500, which was, I think it was 505. It was 495 and then five pound collars and, uh, yeah. hit that pretty easy. And then, and then I came back and, uh, we ended up testing the bench about, maybe four or five, six weeks later before training camp. So we came back in and he's like, Hey, again, we went through a full testing thing. He's like, let's see where you guys bench presses is, you know, is without bench pressing. And I bench pressed 495 pretty fast. <laughs> and he was like, he's like, see, you don't need to do yeah. bench press and get yeah. strong at it. Yeah. But, but I, I, I also had 10 pull-ups with 90 pounds between my waist. So how compared to your teammates, was it a team? It was a lifting culture. The guys really into yeah. it, like you were. Did you oh, have yeah. a couple partners that were just like, all right, man, always there for you? Yeah, you know, you yeah, had... no, we we had really strong guys, but I mean, you got to remember, this was 1990, 1990. Oh, I'm sorry, 94 through 98, and I went to the NFL in 99. So I mean, you got to think like there was, we really had no internet. There was social, no social media. Yeah. You know, we still had answering machines. Uh, so like. All we really had, and, and you got to think, we were all dirt poor. I mean, our scholarship checks were like seven hundred forty bucks a month. My rent was four hundred fifty dollars, and my parents kicked me a few hundred bucks extra a month. So I roughly was living on like five or six hundred dollars a month trying to feed myself. So it was like twice a month we'd go to Costco and buy as much chicken, rice, and beans as I could afford, and, uh, and you know, and that was what we ate. Like everybody walked everywhere. I had like a, a scooter. I think I had my neighbor sold me for like fifty bucks that we would ride on occasion, and um, we didn't really have anything else other than school. Right. Uh, trying to feed ourselves and lifting weights. Yeah. 
That sounds like pretty idyllic. You know? Yeah, I, it, uh, I'll tell people, man, like I would, if you could offer me a time machine to go back in time to that time in my life, I would gladly do it. It was the best time of my life. Yeah. Kind of like now. When you went to the pros, were you pleasantly surprised or were you disappointed by the lifting culture? Or how, how did that, when you first got to the Eagles, what, what were you expecting the lifting to be like and what was it like? So when I left college, I had uh, I, I cleaned and jerked 172 and a half, and I power cleaned 180. I snatched 130, and I front squatted 500 for like I think like uh, I, and it was more than one, but I don't think it was a triple. Maybe I tried three and I didn't get it. Yeah. Um, you know, so I was real strong. So I show up at the Eagles, and I walk in the first day, and uh, there's just huge rows of machines with like a one, two, and three on the floor, and then there's a big board with a number, and I walk in, and uh, strength coach walks over with like a you know clipboard and a piece of paper, and it's like, sit down. And so I sit down in the first machine, and he's like, hey, uh, you know, like, let's hit a couple warm-up sets, and we're going to do one set to failure. And... Um, I was a Doherty. I mean, I've always been a Dorian Yates fan. I remember walking in as a kid and buying Flex magazine and seeing Dorian Yates on the on the cover, and then you know buying the magazine and then trying to go to the gym and do the Dorian Yates prep for the Olympia back routine. Right, so right. like I, I knew you know, and as a um, you know, George had. Hey, hey John, John, yeah. I wrote that article. Huh? <laughs> I did. Well, uh, for him, because I think it was written by him. So you probably were the ghostwriter. Uh, this was in the the, the article. He he only uh, it was in uh, it was in Muscle and Fitness. He was under exclusive. He only wrote for the Weeder Weeder okay. magazines. So yeah, yeah. yeah I wrote one, that article. I wrote that back article after he won the Olympia. Yeah, yeah. That they was asked they asked me to write the article, and they said, "What what body part?" And I said, "Let's do a back article, man." Oh. Yeah most impressive back I'd ever seen. Uh, so, I mean, I, I had the blood and guts uh, videotape that we used to watch in college all the time. Like, I mean, I, I still can't, yeah, like, like that was like the level of intensity. But, uh, you know, the other cool thing about George, uh, George's training space in his garage, he had that three-car garage that we trained in. Uh, because he advertised in all the magazines, he had just literally stacks of these magazines. And, oh, that'd you know, be man. Oh, uh, he had stacks of these mags. Yeah. And so like uh, a big part of George, you know, because he would um, if we did good at training and he wasn't pissed off at us, he would usually take us to dinner uh, on like a Saturday night. If we did good, he'd be like, mm, uh, so what are you guys doing tonight? I'm like, I don't know. And then he'd be like, you guys want to go to dinner? And we were like, OK, so. Uh, and he would just—he was kind of a historian, and you know, would tell us stories about Mike Metzner and um, you know Bill Kazmaier and like all the guys, Odie Wilson, and uh, you know all these people that he knew. Right. And um, I remember talking to him about Mike Metzner and uh, you know the one set to failure and this. And then when uh, I read the Dorian Yates back, and I, so I, I was familiar with it. Right. But it was funny. It wasn't until. Uh, I, I watched the blood and guts video that I understood what his one set to failure was. Dude, the guy had so much volume on the bottom side that he was like, you know, there was 10 sets working up to that, like one yeah, yeah, set yeah. to failure. Yeah. Right. So he, but he, he wasn't walking in off the street, loading the incline to 435 and starting to wreck. Right. Uh, but but that's the way it was kind of portrayed, or at least yeah, exactly. That was bullshit. Yeah, well, of, of course. But it for was, uh, this, 15, was, this was powerlifting with forced reps. Yeah. yeah, but like when you're 14 or 15 years old and you're reading this and you're oh, like, no, yeah, but that, yeah, that was for just yeah, they were kind of fooling. Yeah, yeah. That, that was. But so so I I walk into the Eagles and there's these machines and um 
uh, you know, like they load them up and I'm like, okay, you know, like I know Mike Metzner, I know Dorian Yates, like let's go this one set to failure. That's right. And so we get, there's probably, I bet you 20 machines. So full body, we go through the first one and I get done. They're like, okay. I'm like, can we do it again? <laughs> and uh, I ended up going through like three times. Yeah. And then uh, after that first year, um, the you know Mike Wolf and Tom Kennedy, who are still buddies of mine to this day, uh, all of a sudden they were like, "What do you want to do?" Right. And I was like, well, "This is what I want to do." And then they actually designed me programming, uh, you know, with uh, barbells and free weights and fat bars, and started really creating fun training. And I was like, oh, if, "This is what you guys do. Like, why are you pushing this Penn State, you know, uh, hammer strength stuff?" And they were like. And this was really my first education in this. And they were like, you know what? When you have the greatest players and the greatest athletes in the world, it really doesn't matter what you do. They're going to get stronger and better. We just can't get them injured. And we've found that. They'll be out on the street. They'll be out on the street. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, it's easier just to put, you know, and, and he said uh, a lot of guys don't like to lift weights. So we bring them in. We make it as painless as possible. They get their lift done. They get out. Um, and then if, for the people that are really excited and geeked on it, like yourself, man, we are more than happy to do whatever you want. And I was like, hell yeah. So I, um, that, that first year, uh, I think it was between my rookie year and my second year was where I pretty much everything kind of like came to an apex. So I ended up coming in as a true friend, uh, sorry, as a, as a rookie, my first year I got drafted, I was the second pick in the fourth round. Uh, I came in and started as a rookie, and then at the end of the first half of my very first start, I ended up rupturing my patellar tendon. Mm-hmm. So I took a step. My foot got caught in the seam at Veteran Stadium because, you know, yeah. it's like pain concrete. And I ended up rupturing, having a mid-patellar rupture. And I went into surgery that night. Uh, they told me that nobody had ever come back from this injury, which I always thank them for. And uh, they stitched me back up, and I was, uh, you know, couldn't bend my leg for three weeks. I didn't get out of bed for three months. And um, when I got out, I made this like silent bargain with myself where I was going to like, uh, you know, rekindle. I'm, I'm going to, you know, because I figured like, hey, my NFL career is done, but I'm going to take this time to rehab and, uh, you know, make myself into the best version of myself. And so that like when I leave here and my NFL career is done and I, you know, because I had applied to go to law school. Okay. Uh, they had a, a scholarship for a four year letterman at Berkeley to go to Bolt Hall, which is the law school at Berkeley. And that was kind of my game plan. And um I figured, hey, you know what? I got to get. I got a chance to get here. I got one start. You know, my career is probably much over. I'm just going to rehab for normal, just to be normal and as strong and as best shape as I can be. And uh, I remember I started rehabbing, and I had got hooked up with Mario De Pasquale uh, my rookie year for a supplement deal. And I remember as I was like, so I got hurt in that first game, and then right at like the the beginning of that year is when all of a sudden now I started like, you know, my rehab was kind of going okay and I was moving along and it was time for me to start training. And I remember calling Morrow and being like, Hey, um, you know, just, you know, he sent me his book. I read his book and I asked him, I was like, Hey, uh, the original anabolic diet, right? What's that? The original anabolic diet, the one that in the blue cover, there was like a blue and gray cover, something like that. Oh yeah. No, uh, the original, so he sent me his book and then he, uh, we sat down and he wrote out this full, like kind of custom version of what he wanted me to do. And I remember, uh, it was, I mean, dude, I was eating probably like 450 grams of protein a day. And like, you know, I'm like eating all this fat, no carb. And then like, I remember we did that for probably like four weeks and then uh, I remember the first carb feed he went to, he was like, Hey, I want you to go find like a pasta place that has like pasta and this. And I, and so I, I trained in the morning. He had me fast all that day, 
that night, I think I ate like four pounds of pasta and like a, like an extra large pizza to the point where I was sweating so bad as I was eating that the, that the, the lady came over and she's like, are you okay? You can have a heart attack. And I'm like, no, I'm on this diet. And, uh, I went home and the next morning I woke up and I was like dramatically leaner. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? What were you weighing at that point? What were you weighing? Um, I was probably like right around, um, well, I, I, I lost a bunch of weight, so I was probably like 275, 280, yeah. but I, I really hadn't been training. And uh, all of a sudden, um, in the course of like, man, I think it was, so we go to training camp the third week of July. So I want to say by, by May, I think I was up to like 327. And I was strong. I benched 535 for a triple. Uh, I was like, I was the biggest I had ever been. And I remember we went out to mini camp and I got my stance and I remember the ball hiked. And as I took a step back, I realized I was like, Oh shit, man, like I'm way too big. Is this like little defensive end just orbited me. And I felt like a big planet with like a little moon orbiting. And <laughs> you so, know, you know, Jim was three twenty seven at one time. I was three twelve at but five. At I f- that was like five. five, seven, right? Five, five, nine, five, nine, five, five nine. nine, three, twelve. Jesus. Yeah. Well, I, was, beast, I wasn't dude. trying to go forward, back. I was just powerlifting. He, he, he looked a Mongolian. <laughs> look like, well, we still need pictures of that, Jim, because uh, that must have been a sight. Pluto. Pluto, that's what you call me. <laughs> so, uh, so, I know. With, um, with the marrow thing, were, were you able to um, – most of the guys that I knew that did, I you know, I knew Murrow. He and he was a real deal. You know, he was a he was an IPF world champion. Yeah, I mean, at, at one forty eight. I mean, he was a real deal guy and and a real medical doctor. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the guys they liked the results, but they didn't find it sustainable. Well, um, I after that day, I was knew I was way too big. And I remember I called Morrow kind of in a frantic deal. And I was like, oh, I'm too big. Like I need to lose weight. And he was like, no problem. He's like, this is where we need. He goes, this is what I was waiting for. So all of a sudden uh, he's like, we're going to totally uh, switch the diet around. And he, and I'm like, I got roughly like six weeks uh, to get like, probably like down to where I need to be. And he said, no, no target weight. Uh, three Oh three, three Oh five. Okay. Yeah. So it, it was only about 20, 25 pounds, maybe 20, you know, 23 pounds that I, that I figured I needed to trim down. And, what, what, uh, what was the strategy? Uh, the strategy that every bodybuilder has probably ever used to get shredded, uh, eat, uh, as much protein as possible in a caloric restriction. So I, I was still eating 400 plus grams of protein, and I think I was right around maybe at the time I was consuming maybe like five or six thousand calories, maybe maybe more. And so we we cut it down to like tilapia, uh, which is disgusting, whitefish, chicken, and it was like high protein. Basically, it was a modified protein sparing fast. So at your what 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 did he pull all the fat out of your diet? Was that what he did? Yeah. Oh, that must have been. Nice. So, John, at your target weight at 303 that you got down to, what, what do you figure your uh, bo- uh, body fat was? I was sub 10%. Hmm. Okay. So, I, um, two, two, two years later, so this was, in, this was my second year. Uh, two years later, and I want to say like in my fourth year, we got a bod pod uh, at the Eagles. And they started doing like, you know, testing everybody. And I remember before training camp, uh, 
I came in to test and the guy had told me that they had never tested anybody over 300 pounds under 10% in the bod pod. And I was 306 at like eight, uh, 7.9%. Damn, dude. So I was, I was 282 pounds of lean muscle. Did, did, when, when he changed that diet, did he add more carbs in it? No, we had no carbs. And then how did he get some fatter carbs in there? How did he, did he, did he do that like once a week still? No, no, he, we, did, he did. He did. Weeks. you up, dude. <laughs> Were you miserable? Yes. Were you miserable? Uh, yeah, it was, it was fucking terrible. Yeah. But, um, you know, for, like I can, I'll tell you this, I can survive. Like you give me probably like, Hey, if you, let's do this thing for six weeks, which I'm yeah. sure you've done the bodybuilding stuff for 14. You know, but, sort, uh, of, sort of a version of the old fish and water diet. Well, it's, um, it's, if you guys look it up, it's a, it's a modified protein sparing fast that if you yeah. eat a high amount of protein in a caloric restriction, uh, you don't lose any muscle. You'll only lose fat. And, mm -hmm. uh, man, I lost yeah, I lost probably 20 pounds of fat. And uh, when I walked in, it was pretty funny because, you know, the strength coaches I'd been gone for a month and a half. And all of a sudden, you know, they were probably thinking like, oh, you know, this guy is probably too big. And, you know, wasn't playing that good. And then all of a sudden I show up and I'm like, you know, 303 pounds. I'm, I'm crushing the running. Everything feels great. I remember uh, about a week out, I was like, man, I was so flat. I felt so deflated. And I just felt like this weak and, and everything. And I remember hitting him up and he's like, hey, man, I want you to just, uh, you know, change it into a more normal diet. And we just kind of went isocaloric for those last, you know, probably the last week of it. And all of a sudden it was crazy. First time I ate carbs, uh, you know, all of a sudden like my muscles packed up and I just started looking better. And like within a week, like everything was fine. And I went in and um, uh, I had got hurt that year before they had drafted me. I came back and they had paid a guy named John Runyon like 10 million bucks a year to come in and play my position. So I kind of figured, like, uh, I guess I'm not playing right tackle anymore. And by the uh, end of training camp, I was starting left guard. Or actually, after the second week, I was starting left guard and went on to start for the rest of my NFL career. But it was uh, that kind of, like, that one year, that kind of huge, just really, really focused. I mean, like, all I would do is I'd wake up in the morning, I'd go rehab, I would go lift weights, I would eat, I would come home, I would lay down, and then I would go. There was a gym right on Walnut Street, like right underneath the bridge. If I when I walked out of uh, on 25th, I would cut down Locust, and then I would go up. There was a, there was a, a Thai place, and then there were stairs that would take me up to like the Walnut Street Bridge, and then there was a little gym like a with yellow equipment. I think it's called Crunch, and I would go there and I would I, I would bang weights every night. Sweat, so, oh sweat, I sweat, sweat. Yeah, yeah so I would train there twice a day. You weren't too far from the Mecca in, in Venice. Did you ever go down there? Yeah, we did. Uh, when I was in college, uh, a couple times when I came home for the summer, we drove down there just to go see, uh, you know, like to just go see the freak show and like to go see those there. guys. Yeah. And and I just remember it was funny because when you walked up, there was like a whole bunch of like really nice. There would be like, a, a you know, an S500 Mercedes and this like these dudes. They would try to like park like the biggest a-holes you've ever seen, like in the fire lane, like blocking everybody. And like one time, I think it was like Sean Ray got out of like maybe a Ferrari or something. He like parked on like parked on the curb at like an angle, so like nobody could get out of the parking lot and like his gym bag and all this Tupperware gets out. And I was like, I I met Charlie Glass uh, there. You know, Charlie Glass had been a gymnast at Cal, so when he saw the Cal gear, he came over and we were kind of rapping a little bit. And I'm like, what's up with the the guys in the parking lot? He's like, I don't know. He's like, these guys have some weird thing that like the nicer car that you have in the worst position you can park it. So <laughs> They're weird competitions. Oh, Marty, you know all about box builders, man. Oh, <laughs> it's so weird, man. Like, it, it, uh, yeah, like, it, like I, I, 
it was really the first time I saw people ever like outwardly doing stare like like I was watching these guys like you know these dudes are just huge it was like Paul Dillon and all these bodybuilder dudes and um watching them like pop like uh they had like um I don't know like strips of something with like you know tin foil they would pop through like fill deals and they're like popping stuff like right in the middle I'm like yeah. <laughs> you know it was just it was such a weird deal and Dillette was weak as a kitten he was like getting pumps with 185 in the bench. I mean, it was sick. Yeah. And it was just, you know, it's just a weird subculture. Most of them, with very few exceptions, have any kind of athletic backgrounds. I'm talking about the elite pros. It's a strange, it's just, it's just the, it's a form without function. Yeah. No, it's, um, you know, the, the one thing that, uh, one, I, I don't view it as a sport. It's more like a beauty contest to me. But um, I think the one thing that the bodybuilders have done very well is they've figured out how to carry an inordinate amount of muscle mass yes. in the frame. They're the, world, they're the world's best yeah. dieters. Best dieters, yeah. Well, well but, but in terms of, like, how to put on muscle in this and, like, I think that's really interesting. And I think for, you know, as a strength coach or somebody who's in this strength game, especially working with younger athletes, you have to understand that. Uh, you have to understand, like, hey, like, this is – this is how people put on muscle. This is how you put on size. You know, the age old, like, uh, you know, Mark Ripto, you know, drink a gallon of milk a day, you know, like, uh, I think there's an easier, you know, probably less lactose loading process for that, you know? So I, I just think that, um, uh, if you, if you want to understand how to create a bigger, more muscular athlete, you have to understand a little bit in terms of the diet and what the bodybuilders are doing now. How much of that is drugs? Uh, it's obviously, you know, I, I think that the the training knowledge that those guys have is probably, you know, not nearly what uh, what it should be. I mean, I, I I have a feeling that that thing probably peaked with Dorian Yates. It's probably been declining ever since. Yeah, as far as somebody who actually studies the training and the different modalities. Well, and just the poundages he he like I've never seen anybody handle the poundages he had even to this day. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, the thickest people always did, the, always, you know, the Coleman's. Coleman, yeah. And, oh, and all those old guys who did those basic lifts, you know. I, we always talk about that because there, there's, a, there's a feeling in the bodybuilding world that, oh, deadlifts don't, don't make you have a bigger back. When you're pulling 700 pounds and keeping it close to your shin, man, are your lats activated. And, and I'm just, you know, it's just very, uh, some, oh. some of that stuff. Look, look who, look who had one of the best backs back in the day, Franco Colombo, and he was a hell of a deadlifter. I mean, there's a, a bunch of great shots of him doing deadlifts. I mean, he really believed in the different uh, powerlifting um, exercises. So, yeah, and I think most of those guys did. I think a, a lot of this today is it's too hard. <laughs> and that's what Dorian always says. He says nobody wants to to put in the work now. Nobody wants to go through. You know, John, you mentioned blood and guts. I mean, go on there. You know, Dorian always talks about doing one set to failure. But if you look at that set and the intensity he puts into that, there's no way in heck he could do two sets. He's done. Yeah, yeah but but all the volume. I mean, if you think about, it, he's. Let me think how I put this. Like um, the analogy I gave somebody once is like, like let's say he takes five sets to stack as much dynamite as he can. He's dragging dynamite over in the lower sets. He's building all that lower end volume. That final set is him hitting the dynamite with a hammer for the explosion. Right. And I was like, you know, like you can hit a hammer as hard as you want, but if you don't stack that dynamite on the bottom side, it's not going to be as explosive. Right. So I think at least when I looked at it, like he was getting all of that volume in that bottom set. And then that final intensity, which is the, you know, really the, 
his balancing of volume intensity, which as you guys know, is really the, you know, the art of this thing is, is how I looked at it. And then like looking at his exercise selections, like it just, man, like just the level of intensity at which he trained at. And I, and I always loved his statement that I could have never done this in California. I knew I had to stay in this dark, dingy, you know, uh, you know, hole of a gym and, you know, to really be focused. And, um, I, man, that, that to well, me is by far the most impressive thing. Well, the other thing is too, I mean, nobody knew what he was doing and he would just, <laughs> he would just come out and compete and everybody would just go crazy. Cause it's like, they didn't know what he was doing. They didn't, they hadn't seen him all year or whatever. And, uh, he would just explode on stage and it was like, you know, nothing in anybody had ever seen before. Is that, that why they called him the shadow? That's yeah. why. Yeah. Yeah. I never got that shadow. I like the <laughs> I like the diesel a lot better. That's what I, yeah, that's what I like. Uh, he he was good on the diet thing too. Yeah, very. He, he had kind of a sane diet. He had he had ground beef in his diet. He had bagels in his diet. It wasn't insanely strict, but he'd go from the off season and the off season he'd be eating like six thousand calories a day. I think even leading up to the Olympia, he was never less than three thousand. Yeah. So wow. it wasn't like starvation, like like most of the guys are doing. He had so much muscle, man. So much muscle. That- well, yeah. uh, and, he, and he's whittling down from three hundred to what yeah. two sixty. So I mean, you know, he's that's that, that's going to take a while. So after, so yeah. uh, when you left Philly, uh, you went to Kansas City. Yeah. What was the lifting culture like there? Um. I think it was uh, it was good. I mean, it, it wasn't nearly as uh, I guess aggressive as what we had in Philly, but I just brought that with me. You know, I I, I had a, a like a kind of an interesting observation. I think it was like in my second or maybe my third or fourth year that I would train like the whole seat a whole off season, and then we'd go to training camp. And as long as I could continue to bang heavy weights in training camp, that like all of a sudden um, all the extra work and practice we were doing would kind of like you know, kind of dig me into this deep hole, almost like a super compensation. And then all of a sudden, as we came out of uh, training camp and we started getting the preseason and they started kind of decreasing the um, uh, the volume, all of a sudden, like I knew I was going to catch like this massive peak. Yeah. And um, some of my best lifts and some of my strongest days came kind of in that like uh, end of training camp before the first game. And I remember um, I, I always had a deal where um, I only benched one day a week, but I would bench heavy on Fridays because it would take me about four or five days for my hands and my shoulders and everything to start feeling better after a Sunday. And I had a deal where I'd come in and um, I would load up like the first week I would load up four or five and I'd do a set of max reps and I could get maybe, you know, let's say call it like a set of seven or eight. And then every week I would at least put four or five on the bar and try to, you know, get down. It was kind of this like cascading where I'd be like, eight reps and then seven and then over the course of the season you know towards the end of the year i'd still handle it for like a double or a single or double even a triple and it was and people always ask me they were like well how come you did that i'm like you know what like um the i always feel more explosive when i lift the heavy weights and psychologically this is how i do it and um whereas you guys are reducing load but increase or i'm sorry you guys are increasing load but upping the volume what i'm doing is i'm cutting volume and keeping intensity the same yeah. which allowed me to stay stronger longer. So like, I, I never really understood the idea of like, Hey, as I'm getting tired and doing more work, I'm just going to like drop the weight and just do a shit ton of reps. Excuse yeah. my language. Um, 
So what I did is I, I would like peg the weights and say, okay, hey, these are my base numbers. All I'm going to do is drop volume, but I'm going to keep intensity high, which I think allowed me to stay stronger, punch harder, and be better over the course of the season. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. Do that and do less. Just just get you staying strong, by, but you're doing less. Yeah, I mean, my, my big deal, and still to this day, the training I do in Power Athlete is really what I call trunk-centric. I always hated the word core because uh, apples and pears have cores, and I never want to be related to, like, an apple <laughs> or a pear. But here in Texas, we have these badass thick oak trees, and uh, I always think about the midsection that connects my lower body to my upper body, you know, as, like, a big thick oak tree. And so my training was always uh, extremely, I guess, biased within that, and a lot of that stuff came from um, – you know, through Mara, I got hooked up with Charlie Francis and Charlie oh, Francis' GPP cool. med ball work and all his sprint stuff. He was the guy that turned me on to EMS. And when we started talking about like, you know, uh, uh, trunk work and, you know, rotation and this and med balls. And, you know, he was like, hey, if, uh, if you're going to lift weights, you know, I, I need you to, you know, 30 minutes a day of just focused trunk work that looks like, you know, a transverse uh, frontal plane, uh, sagittal plane. And, you know, and then he, he sent me a bunch of stuff on his GPP med ball work. And uh, I still, to this day, do a ton of that stuff. And I think it's why I've avoided any back injuries. And I still continue to squat heavy. Um, I didn't pull a deadlift off the ground my entire NFL career. I just did RDLs. And uh, I I think at my best, I RDLed uh, 585 for a set of eight. And um, I just didn't see the need to pull uh, a bar off the ground. So I would just do heavy heavy RDLs. And I felt that they had greater carryover for not only my low back and my strength, but also for my speed. And it's a it's a serious exercise. It's not tricep kickbacks. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What no, were you guys? I mean, um, sorry. What were you guys doing for cardio back then in those days? Um. I. You know what? I. I always subscribed, and this was a huge tactical error on my part that I didn't figure out until uh, maybe five or six, seven years ago. Uh, I always thought building an aerobic base and cardio was was a waste of time. Was nonsense. I was. I always subscribed to this idea that if I was really strong in the in the ATP phase and my glycolytic was explosive and powerful, and I was very very uh, adept glycolytic uh, energy system, that all that stuff would carry downstream into an aerobic work. And so what I would do is I would sprint, I would run. Um, I did a ton of like versa climber sprints, and for my really my conditioning came with running and hill running and just uh, a ton of speed stuff. I mean, I tried to, I subscribed to Charlie's deal where it was like, either you're going to run as fast as you can to run fast, or you're going to do recovery runs and tempo runs. And it wasn't until I retired and we started kind of testing some online programs. And um, I got, I got uh, the guys at work, we, we ended up starting this thing, which we called 22 Jack Street, which was just a challenge where we picked out of a hat. And I think that you guys would appreciate this, but we picked out, uh, you either had to gain 10% of your body weight or you had to lose 10% of your body weight. And we took like, you know, body fat strength. We, we just did found all these different metrics. The guys ended up selecting, they, they pulled out gain 10. I, I was at lose 10. So at the time I was like 280, 280 something. And, uh, at the end of 22 weeks, I was like in like, I want to say like the low two. So I, I ended up losing 10% of my body weight. So if I was 286, I think I lost like 26 pounds, but I ended up getting down to like 6% body fat. And the only way I did it was I was doing a ton of aerobic work. So I was doing like, Hey, I would jump on the bike. I was like doing the Versa climber. I was just trying to do all this aerobic work to try to, you know, see any way I could to burn uh, body mass. 
And the crazy part was as my aerobic capacity went up and the way that I was, I was checking it was I put on a heart rate monitor and I would ride as hard as I could until I got up to like my 70, 75% heart rate. So in the beginning, it would take me a few minutes and I got to the point where I was having to ride for like 40 minutes just to get up to where my heart rate, I could actually, you know, like get my heart rate up. And, uh, and then I would ride for 20 minutes at my, at my given heart rate. And then I'd be on the bike for like, or the stair climber, the step mill, I mean, whatever it was for like 60 minutes. And then all of a sudden, um, I, you know, like my program has always been based on like rep maxes. So I always thought like, I, I never liked one RMs and I never liked classical periodization for the idea that I'm going to take this moment frozen in time. And then I got to extrapolate percentages. So for me, I always based everything off of rep maxes. And then I would base uh, my compensatory acceleration work, which was the, you know, George's good friend, uh, Dr. Fred Hatfield, you know, his book, Power and Compensatory Acceleration, which George talked to us about at 14 years old, the idea that is, or the principle that is mechanical advantage increases, so does speed, which is something that I've taken everything from the bench press to the squat. And I think was probably one of the reasons I got to play in the NFL for 10 years um, was that I was never just trying to hit people. I was trying to like hit through them, you know? And, um, um, so we, uh, I had been in the weight room and we were, you know, like, you know, just doing rep maxes, cat work. And I think, and like all of a sudden I was PR and lifts. Like, I, I think I deadlifted like 600 for like a set of four. And I was like, I squatted 600 for reps and I was doing all this cat work. And as I was losing weight and getting leaner and getting in shape, all of a sudden my lifts were going up. Huh. And, uh, the only difference I could think of was the aerobic work. And then I went back and pulled out a bunch of research on, you know, developing an aerobic base and the idea of um, increasing mitochondrial density with an aerobic base. And like at that, as I was reading it and seeing these effects, I realized I was like, shit, I, uh, I made a real tactical error with this one. And so I ended up writing a blog about like, Hey, I made a huge mistake, yeah. <laughs> you know? And, um, and so now I put a lot of, I put a lot of stock in developing an aerobic base. That's what Marty's always talking about. He's always talking about, uh, you know, the benefit it gives you everywhere else besides just the, uh, the cardio conditioning. Yeah. When you were working hard to get up to 75%, you weren't breaking sweat either, were you? No. Yeah. Cause you're, you're a highly conditioned athlete, so yeah. it's going to take you more Oh, it, uh, like, like I was to the point where I was, um, uh, like wearing like sweats with a hoodie up and yeah. I was, I was, I was like sprinting yeah. as fast as I could on the assault bike and the aerodyne or whatever we were yeah. using. And then I got to the point where I saw these like fitness girls, uh, using the stentinels and like, I was like, you know what? If, if these chicks are all in phenomenal shape, I'm going to get on the step mill. So I got to the point where I felt like I was sprinting up at this thing just to try to get my heart rate up. And I couldn't get it up. And yeah. I was like, I was like, dude, this is insane. And then finally it would take, you know, anywhere from like 30 to 40 minutes for me to like get my heart up, heart rate up to where I needed it. And then I, and then once I had my heart rate hit, that's when I would do my 20 minutes. So it's kind of funny when people are like, Oh, I do 20 minutes of cardio a day. And you're like, okay, yeah, I did 20 minutes at my peak zone. How long does it take you to get to your peak zone? And that was really my only metrics for knowing that, um, uh, that I was, you know, my rope capacity was increasing was just how long it was taking me for me to get my heart rate up. Well, we'll do 20 minutes a day sprinting up steep hills. We won't do it on a stationary bike. Yo, that assault bike, though, is, is hard, isn't it? I yeah, I like know. that. Yeah, yeah. Like oh, that. yeah. Well, well, that's what we've always used, these salt bikes yeah. and the aerodynes, yeah. um, just because it's the, you know, the cross-patterning and this. But I'll tell you this, uh, the probably the greatest strength developer and leg developer for, for us is, uh, has always been hill sprints. I mean, where I live here in Texas, uh, Jim's seen my building and my, and my property, 
but I, I'm pretty decent with a skid steer and I graded the whole backside of my building into about a 40 yard upward sprint. And we go back and run that because, um, you know, one, nobody runs poorly uphill, which, uh, we've tested this for years. Um, so nobody runs poorly uphill and it never gets easy. Yeah. It, you know, so what, what would, what would constitute a typical session? Um, if it's a uh, more speed development, maybe like six yeah. to 10 reps with more max recovery. And yeah. then the other ones would be kind of more, more on the minute or we'll, oh, we're, whoa, 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 whoa. okay. Time out. So, okay. So give me the, the number of reps again. So, uh, if it's more speed development, more max effort type stuff, uh, somewhere between six to 10 reps, depending okay. on like, uh, now, now how much time are you putting between each one? Um, that really depends on the individual. Like if your capacity and your conditioning is in, uh, what would, you know, Char what would Charlie recommend? Uh, Charlie would recommend probably three to five minutes in between sprints. Okay. And, and assuming, again, assuming that you have the aerobic capacity. Well, yeah, but it also six to 10, you know, not, we're not doing 25 of the things. We're all out, man. Yeah. Well, 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 Charlie's deal was quality. You know, yeah, like, like the minute the minute that the quality ends, uh, it becomes counterproductive for you know uh, for you know neural efficiency and all that other good stuff. So he somewhere had, between six and ten. John, he had a great quote. He said, um, "What's the sense of running at one hundred two percent of eighty five percent?" Right. Why not just run one hundred two percent at one hundred percent? Let's yeah. run one hundred two percent at one hundred percent. Yeah, now he, you know, and it's funny because, well, John, I did the same thing. Of course, I wasn't doing 405, but, uh, you know, where I was like, you have to be able to do this much weight. I think it was 350 in the bench or something like that during the season. And then same with the Charlie Francis and running fast to stay fast. I remember being in college and going, I haven't sprinted all out all week. How am I going to stay? You know, how am I going to keep my speed at all? So I started doing stuff after practice, you know actual full speed stuff because you get to the point where during football yeah you're doing some stuff where but a lot of it's thud mm -hmm. and you're not really getting that that full speed so i agree with that wholeheartedly man no i uh we, there, there had to be some max effort stuff in the weight room but there also had to be some sprints i mean we we would always kind of run you know like hey if, like we ran striders or we did something they would always end up turning into you know max effort type sprints right. just because people are competitive um, on, on the conditioning side, we usually do either on the minutes, uh, you know, for, you know, 15 to 20 minutes, or what we'll do is, um, we'll throw like a kettlebell in there where we'll do like 10 swings in a sprint and then you come back and you get like 90 seconds rest. So we'll, we started, I, I found that the kettlebell, which is a pretty funny thing, man. Like, um, I think people go too far with the kettlebells and they get all like, what would I call jazzy bells? And they think that like, it's the panacea and it's this. Uh, what, I, what I really like about the kettlebell is one, it's for, for the troll. It, it's a, uh, it, it te teaches task specific tension, which means like, can I stay relaxed to swing it, but then can I turn my trunk on and create the tension that I need on the eccentric load? And then I also found that the bigger handle, uh, ramps up uh, heart rate and blood pressure and puts you in this like in extreme kind of metabolic distress. And so when we started mixing the swings with some of the hill sprints, uh, it was a really nasty effect and, and really I just kind of swing them and I, I put them into what I call like my trunk work into like a, you know, Hey, like this is for my low back, this is for my trunk and this is for that task specific tension. And so I use them in that way. But, um, how I many, always, how many sets and reps? Um, so, uh, 
a big one for us is um, if, if we're doing the sprints, it'll probably be like 10 to 15 swings with, um, and we, we have them heavy. So single we start arm, single arm look, or double arm, uh, single arm, or I'm sorry, double arms. Double so we always arm. do double swings, but I have a 72, I got a 106, I got a 150, and then we have a 203. Oh, oh, what would you use in between sprint? Uh, what would you use in between your sprints? Uh, oh, if we're doing the sprint, probably the the seventy two, or we use the one, or the what is it like the one hundred and six? So now, we'll swing that. Are these the hill sprints at your at your house? Yeah, correct. So you'll run, and what what are these forties, fifties? What are yeah, it's like it, it depends on where you start. We have a thir- uh, if you start a little forward, it's thirty, and if you start a little back, it's forty. So you blast up the hill. Now, do you do you jog back and hit the kettlebell, or is the kettlebell waiting for you? No, so we swing the bell, uh, the kettlebell first, set it down, and then you sprint, and then you walk back down, and you've got about 90 seconds to get back Now, down. when you get back down, do you hit the kettlebell before you sprint? Yes. Okay. How many? And you do that how many times? Uh, well, probably, I mean, if it's 90, so normally we will set like a target rate of like 20 minutes, so we'll probably get 10, 10 or 12 rounds. If we did, if we went with a lighter bell, uh, and it was we wanted to really push it, we'd probably do them on the minute and maybe get 15 to 20 rounds. And and what were your reps? Uh, probably ten to fifteen, depending on the way the bell. If it's lighter, like a seventy-two, probably fifteen, and then if it's heavier, probably ten. I, I I read an article. What was it? Years ago, that talked about Andy Bolton. Somehow, I think he hurt his back or he did something, and so he got mixed up with Pavel and those guys, and so they ended up getting him like a two hundred three pound pedal. Uh, what was it? Two hundred three pound kettlebell. And he swam, he, he did 10 swings on the minute for 10 minutes. So he got 100 swings in 10 minutes with wow. that 203. And so I, when I read the article, I went and I bought that 203. And uh, I did it. And, um, man, I, I don't think I've ever done it since. So, <laughs> it's a, that's, a, that's a nasty thing. So I, I did kettlebells. I think that there's a place for them. The problem is, is that I think people like all of a sudden like go into the kettlebell camp and they just get weird on these things and then they want to like you know juggle on them and i do all this jazzy bell stuff and i think it's just weird it's like a cult almost sometimes yeah it's not an end-all be-all it's just another tool it's a good tool it's a legitimate tool but it's just another tool it's it's like the assault bike right yeah just another valid tool barbell you know a bench that inclines a power rack you know these are the tools we use uh, all right. Well, listen. What else do we cover here? Because we have kind of kind of everything inside real, out. Real quick, um, John. Why don't you t- go into a little bit of training after forty? I mean, you're what forty couple. Yeah, I just turned forty-four so, last on Monday. So, I mean, what are you doing differently now than than you were ten years ago, or back when you were playing uh, NF in the NFL? So. Um, I had a pretty interesting, like a premonition when when I retired that if that if I stopped training and uh, I stopped preparing, like somebody was going to call me or that I was going to get to go play in the NFL again, uh, that the wheels would eventually fall off. Now I don't weigh nearly what I used to. I think I weigh like you know two seventy, two seventy five. Um, I'm probably thirty five pounds less than or thirty pounds less than what I was. But I still go in. Um, the guys that all work for me, we meet at 6 a.m. And I have a building full of, uh, like, I built my own gym. So it's kind of uh, kind of funny with this quarantine deal. Um, I have a, a barn that we converted into office space. And I have a gym and everything. I get 16 acres here in Texas. So everything is encased in the property. So it really hasn't changed our lives at all. Um, 
you know, I, I have a freezer full of meat because I hunt and, uh, you know, I'm, the only difference is I've been homeschooling my kids now, but, um, the, the training has stayed very, very consistent to what I've always done. Uh, I still, you know, squat heavy at least once a week because do a squat with volume. I try to deadlift once a week. We do a ton of pulls, uh, and then we do a ton of conditioning and the swings and kettlebells and, and, uh, you know, rinse and repeat. Uh, the only issue I've been dealing with is, um, when I got approached by CrossFit, I, I was doing some you know CrossFit stuff, and I think uh, we were doing I think it was bar muscle ups, and I kind of slipped off the bar funny, and I and I tore my rotator cuff, my infra, and my supraspinatus, mm. and uh, I rehabbed it, and it and I just started losing range of motion over time where I couldn't put my hand over my head, so I was stuck at about ninety degrees, and so about on December twelfth I went in after dealing with this for eight years and finally got my, sh- my uh, shoulder scoped and they found that uh, my rotator cuffs, infra and supraspinatus were not fully detached. They were just heavily frayed. So the guy cleaned it all up. He got rid of the osteophytes and all the, the bone chips and all the, the garbage that was in my shoulder. And so I've just been rehabbing my shoulder uh, for the last three months. But like I've been squatting with like a safety or with a, um, I want to have the half field original safety squat bars. Uh, so yeah. we, I've just been doing a ton of safety squats and just a lot of, you know, like rehab stuff for my shoulder, uh, a lot of, um, you know, single arm RDLs and, and just a bunch of conditioning stuff. So I've been, uh, I, I haven't been running as much, uh, just because like the, the actuation of the arm was kind of banging up my rotator cuff. So just been doing that. Now, but you go, Go ahead, Jake. Sorry, but you were in there doing muscle ups at like 270, 280? Uh, I competed in the CrossFit Games at 308 pounds. <laughs> doing muscle ups. It's yeah. a film. It's <laughs> on Netflix, right? That's yeah, funny. yeah, yeah. There's a movie about it. Um, when I was when I was in my tenth year, uh, I was training to go play for the Patriots, and I was training at a CrossFit gym because uh, they were the only place around that had bumper plates. And uh, they asked me, "Hey, do you want to, you know?" the CrossFit powers that be, you know, the alien mothership hit me up and said, Hey, do you, you know, would you want to compete in this CrossFit games thing? And I was like, well, what's that? And they're like, Oh, this is kind of workout the fittest man on the planet. And I was like, yeah, fuck it. I'll go win that thing. Excuse yeah, my language. <laughs> and uh, so I, I showed up to this thing a week before training camp and there was like two or 300 people. I think I finished like top 70, not knowing that they were stacking the deck against me. Like it was like, you know, 95 pound thrusters and burpees type stuff. Like there was nothing heavy. Like I thought they were at least going to like throw something in there. Like the, originally, like they had to work out with deadlifts at 315, but then they cut it to 275 because they were nervous that they, that the people there couldn't pull a 315 deadlift. Oh, and so uh, they, they pretty much stacked it against me, but I still finished in like, you know, 70 out of it. And then a week later I went to go play for the Patriots and uh, I ended up getting hurt in the last preseason game. I chipped off a piece of bone in my knee and, um, Came home and had knee surgery, and that was my tenth year. That was it. That's yeah. phenomenal, man. I mean, Jim, you've been three oh eight. I've been, I've been three oh five, and I can tell you what I was never doing a muscle up at three oh five. I mean, yeah, that, I could do handstand push ups and, and all that, <laughs> stuff, man. And, and the, the, the comment I made to those guys is, if uh, I was thirty two at the time, if they had found me when I was like twenty five or twenty six, I would have decimated those dudes for years. Yeah, and that's something. Marty always says if he if he'd have, what's the saying Marty if you would have found me early on you would have turned me into a eight hundred pound squatter. Oh yeah, well of course with your skeletal skeletal structure. Yeah. 
be hard to do. But John's got some serious athleticism, man. I mean, to be that heavy and doing it. That's why he ended up playing in the NFL. That's that's right. I mean, (laughs) you don't see that every day. I mean, no kidding. You know, the six foot six guys with uh, 7% body fat. Yeah. Competing in the CrossFit games. That's crazy. I don't see a lot of that in my neighborhood. Is that on YouTube, John? Yeah. So we can go uh, see no, you compete. It, yeah, it, it's on Netflix and YouTube. Netflix. It's called Every Second Counts. I'm going to write that down. I want to check it out. Every well, Second Counts. I'm watch it, probably, JP. Although your business is probably going good. It's still going good, JP? Yeah, we're pretty pretty blessed, man. I mean, we're helping a lot of people get their, their equipment to their house so they can work out while they're, you know, yeah. on... Uh, and, and you're still able to do that. So anybody out there who needs gear, get on it and get in touch he's got it and he's got the best stuff and he's got good prices so let's go john i was john, reading on there we, go ahead sorry john no, I, no. <laughs> sorry oh, that, that, that. um no real quick i was i was reading on your website you know all these different um these um uh programs that you have for people you know uh field strong jack street but the one the one that really got my attention uh, was the 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 one where you prepare the guys for the army? Yeah, and so I, the- I worked as a um, uh, I don't necessarily publicize it too, uh, too much because um, I feel that you know sometimes when people do this stuff it just appears douchey. But um, I when I retired from the NFL, I was approached by uh, Naval Special Warfare, and I went in and I taught performance for the SEAL teams. For I still do it. Um, so we, and it kind of went in the West coast and then we went out and we worked with all the guys at development group and, you know, two to three out of the five teams at development group follow our training program. And we've been in there and worked with those guys. And so, um, we worked with the 18th airborne Corps in the U S army, uh, went in and taught training programs for them. And so, um, we've done a ton of work with the U S military and I, ironically, uh, the programs that we ended up launching, which you see is called the hammer, which is, was actually the program we developed for what I call our, our war fighters and our door kickers at name special warfare. And also for the guys at, uh, uh, for the U S army. And then, um, the program we actually launched in wake of this, uh, uh COVID-19 deal. Um, I call it third monkey and it's really an austere training program that we designed for the guys that were on deployment or the guys that didn't have access to gym equipment. So, uh, all the programs and all the you know large group you know performance training that we've done through Power Athlete for these uh, you know different groups of the military, you know we had all this stuff that we had just kind of kept offline and used with them, and then when all of a sudden this stuff happened, uh, we just ended up launching it. So it's been it's been pretty good, and the reason we don't talk a ton about it is normally you see these you know what I call these douchebag uh, internet trainers that are like you know we train Navy SEALs, and I'm like, no, you don't. And I know because we actually go there and do that, and I know who who does their training programs, and it's not these guys. So we just kind of keep it offline, and it's um, it's just, you know, like the quiet professional, which is part of their deal, is uh, just kind of what we do. Well, the Army Combat Fitness Test is uh, something we're very familiar with. We we actually supply a lot of that equipment, the the hex bars, the bumper plates, (laughs) the, uh, the sleds, and all that stuff. And that, when did they implement that? They, uh, Army brought that on, what, probably three or four years ago? Something like Recently. that? Uh, it, it, was, it was about two years ago, almost uh, probably 18 months. What happened was they had talked for years. And I, I spoke out at the uh, NDU, which is the war college on, on the PT test when this new one came out. Yeah. And uh, 
what happened was uh, like the original. Like I, I thought it was pretty ironic that they, uh, when we declared war in World War One, they just started pulling kids off of the street and they were pulling them off of the farms and they were sending them over there. And the kids were fine. They could dig holes. They knew how to swing hammers. Like they were fairly fit individuals because the you know look at the state of our country and the rural nature of it. Right. Uh, when we got to World War Two. I want to say 30% of the kids that they brought in in terms of the draft didn't pass the physical standards and were knocked out. And so after World War II, there was a, a real need that we need to have some form of physical testing. We need some form of benchmarks for not only the active but for the new people. And so they had a pretty good test. And they kept that test for a number of years and it got adjusted. It looked like, you know, throwing and running and lifting. And, and it was a, a fairly competent test. And then in 1982, uh, after the you know the jogging craze with Nike and we won a marathon in the Olympics and all that, they changed it to this you know two mile run or is it mile? Yeah, I think it's a two mile run, mile and a half run, push up, sit up deal because that way they could do it anywhere. And the problem is, is when they changed that PT test to something that was easier, the level of complacency and just the culture just took a took a nosedive. And so they've been talking for years about how to you know, change this culture of mediocrity and complacency in the U.S. military and the U.S. Army. And, uh, you know, it's kind of funny. They could have fixed it much easier if they had just thrown pull-ups in because uh, the Marines have pull-ups in their PT test, and that's why you never see a fat Marine. Even old Marines that are 60 or 70 years old are still super fit because they got to do pull-ups. It's tough to do pull-ups with a fat ass. And um, then they they implemented this new test, and uh, they did a lot to try to – you know, not put in pull-ups, but what was pretty fascinating is the army, I think realized that, or actually the powers that be realized that they were never going to get a culture change. So they just literally just dropped the test on people and said, Hey, this is what we're doing. And in in essence, like the tail wagging the dog and then forced companies like yours and all this other stuff to go procure a bunch of equipment um, that they weren't trained to use. Uh, And I know because we went and taught a whole bunch of seminars for these guys and just like the basics of teaching how to like, as you guys know, like a trap bar is more similar to a back squat than it is to a deadlift because you don't have to work around your shins. I mean, just, you know, understanding how to brace your trunk in terms of a carry and this, I mean, it's pretty, pretty fascinating. So, yeah, we did a ton of work with that piece. Well, I would think there's a pretty big market for that because the the state of our culture now with computers and, you know, just a, a sedentary lifestyle. I mean, you know, these kids are going into the Army or, or just whatever armed forces and, um, you know, nobody's ready. I, I mean, I think even it comes down to their bones being brittle and weak because they're not doing any weight-bearing exercises or getting out and running and climbing trees and doing all this stuff that we used to do. So... I think it's a big problem. So I would think that, uh, you know, that's a pretty big market for anybody that's looking to go in the military. Yeah, let's give you an example. Uh, When I went in and got my shoulder scoped in December, uh, the doctor went in, um, you know, cleaned it all up, you know, did all this. And then he, uh, they're doing a deal where they're tapping the hip and they're pulling out bone marrow and then they're spinning it down and then they're re-injecting it back into the joint to try to get healing going with stem cells. And um, the interesting thing is the doc said, he goes, hey, we're going to tap both your hips. We're going to pull out this marrow. And so when I saw him uh, the next day after the surgery, he's like, man, we tapped one of your hips. And we actually pulled the biggest, uh, the highest volume of stem cells that we'd ever pulled out of a, out of a uh, collection from the marrow out of one of your hips. And it was because it was, the marrow was really dark and thick and it was like really crazy looking. And he goes, when we, when we spun it down and we saw the count, we were like, wow, this is, you know, an outlier. 
And so they injected it back and um, the doc and I was like, oh, that's kind of neat. And he's like, you know, the irony of this is I worked on a kid right after you that had the identical procedure. We had to clean his shoulder up and we did the stem cell on his shoulder and his marrow. We got less than half out of both hips than we got out of your one hip. Yeah. And he goes, not only um, were your muscles thicker, but he goes, you actually had a bigger tear on your infra supra and the rotator cuff than he did. But when we shaved him down, your your attachments were probably three times thicker. Yeah. So he's like, just the, uh, the the thickness of the muscle, the ligaments, the tendons and everything. He goes, um, and that kid was 20 years old. So I was 43. So he's like, so a kid who's less than half of your age. And he goes, not only did we get more, you know, like have a, a greater stem cell count, thicker marrow, more dense, but he goes, it was like one ton parts versus half ton parts. Yeah. No right. loading. Right. Yeah. And, and so, so, so he, he was confused because he's like, we would have thought it was the exact opposite. And I was like, yo man, I've been banging heavy weights, eating a high protein diet and like got some pretty decent genetics for the last, you know, uh, 20, you know, 30 years of my life. I just turned 40, 44. So I've been doing this for 30 years. And I was like, you don't think all that stuff is a cumulative effect? And he's like, I don't know what it is, but like, keep doing whatever you're doing. So I, I just took that as like we were on the right path. But, you know, pretty interesting that they got a 20 year old kid who was also a football player at a major division one deal. And he goes, it was like two, it was like two different species. Wow. That is surprising. Yeah. Surprising. Well, all right. Listen, we've, uh, gone over a lot of stuff here we've gone over an hour but uh all good stuff we've really uh enjoyed talking with you john what do you want to plug what's going on over there i mean you're down uh, what, what are you yeah. in austin are you in austin yeah yeah we're, we're in austin really what power athlete did is um you know we were into like large group uh education and like you know working with crossfit we went in and taught you know i taught you know 200 seminars all over the globe you know and you know every continent on the planet over the last decade. And then uh, with my relationship with them kind of evaporated because we started having these philosophical differences and that uh, um, I didn't really care as much about fitness and was more focused on performance and uh, CrossFit wasn't necessarily focused on performance and, you know, their model is fitness and this, and, you know, and I became really kind of rigid. I'm like, Hey man, like you can get real fit doing a lot of stuff, but performance is performance. And if you just look at strength, it's just another aspect of fitness then we can't work together. So we ended up parting ways and I had started power athlete right around, uh, you know, 2009. And then at that point we just went full time and we ended up working a ton with the military and we work with a ton of just individuals that are looking for good performance training. And, um, we started doing online programming in 2012. So what you see with all the online programs we do is we got a pretty good community, probably 4,500, 5,000 people a day checking programs. And um, we write programming for these guys, and I think it's the best stuff we do. Um, and then the other piece is we do coaches' education. So we have a methodology course. And really what we've been grinding on for the last couple months and really has taken full steam is um, uh, this ACL uh, course. And I think we had Tim Hewitt on the podcast yesterday. He was pretty much like the, you know, the, the foremost expert in ACL tears. Uh, but really this idea of like – there is a very, very real set of training and also assessments that coaches can learn that will prevent and put their athletes in the best position to not tear ACLs. And I think what's frustrating for me is I, I tore an ACL in college. My rehab was terrible. Um, you know, after doing all the research and looking at this thing, I know why I tore it and I know how the mechanism fits. And um, I don't want other people to have to go through that. So the only way I know how to head that off is just through education and making sure that I spread the word. So we've been really pushing on, uh, on this idea of like, 
you know, the ACL tear is a neurological kind of movement issue. Uh, we break it down into, you know, modifiable risk factors. And then what I really have focused on doing is creating this like common language for parents, sport coaches, doctors, whatever, so that they can have a coherent, intelligent conversation. Um, you know, as a parent, if you're going to ask your kid to go play a sport and you're going to put them out there and you have zero knowledge on training, injury, all the other stuff, then you're at the mercy of people. You know, it's like my dad dropping me off at 14 years old at Zangus's house, which I still laugh to this day as a parent. Would I just drive my kid up and push him out of the car at some weird old Greek guy's house who's lifting weights in his garage? No, not knowing what you know now, no. Yeah. Well, well, no, not you know, not knowing. I mean, I don't know. Like he could have been a weirdo doing weird stuff. I mean, he wasn't. We got to lift weights, and like George became a good family friend of ours. But like, I, I was thinking about like the faith, and when I asked my mom and dad, my dad since passed away, but I remember talking to my mom, and my mom's like. I don't know, maybe it was just a different time. Like we were just like, you, kids seemed more capable. Like I just didn't worry about that stuff. And uh, I was like, man, like I, if uh, some guy invited my kids to come lift weights and I, I, I'd go over there and be like, okay, you know, hey, like I'm just, you know, I, I'm just gonna hang back and watch. I wanna see that everything that you're not some pervert or some weirdo. And I wanna see that you know what the hell you're doing. Because as you guys know, there's a lot of people that don't know what they're doing that think they know what they're doing. And, uh, I, you know, we see it every day where I just kind of like, you know, scratch my head. I mean, I have a podcast called uh, Power Athlete Radio, and the theme of our, our podcast has always been Battle the Bullshit uh, because there is just and, – and Marty, you guys know this, and Jim, I mean, you guys are, are you know, know this better than anybody. Um, you see people talk about strength, and you're like, that guy's never lifted weights before. <laughs> I'm fairly sure you have never, like, I'll just give you an example. I, I remember Greg Glassman, who's the owner of CrossFit, uh, we were at dinner and he started talking to me about pulling heavy deadlifts. And I realized within about 30 seconds that he has never pulled a deadlift off the ground. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, wow. I, and, and like, it was like, it, it just reminded me of that 40 year old virgin story where he's like, yeah, like the breast felt like two bags of sand. And they're like, oh, you're a virgin. It was like that same moment. I was like, you've never lifted, you've never pulled a deadlift off the ground, have you? He's like, what are we talking about? I'm like, uh, because if you did, you would know that's not any, like, like, like that's not how it works. You can't fake that, that's for sure. Yeah, and, and so, like, the, the interesting thing, and you guys know this, about, like, the, the iron game is, like, you know, uh, like, the, the weights are extremely forgetful. Like you walk away from them, they don't remember who you are, they don't care who you are, they're always, you know, they're always heavy and they, you know, and they, they never get light. And I think with uh, with training for me especially, uh, whatever never gets easy is usually the training that I bias. And the, the two things that never got easy, the weights never got light, and running never got easy. Right. Yeah. Right. So like if 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 I can like go out and run and still kill myself, and I can go in the gym, like other stuff we've tried, like I've been like, oh okay, like I've a you know I. I figured out the efficiency of this. This got better. Heavy weights and sprinting, like, but the problem is, is those are the foundations. Those are the principles. Those are the basics. And it's really hard to sell people on the unsexy basics of the world. Like you're going to bang heavy weights and you're going to sprint as fast as you can. And um, you're not going to eat like an a-hole. And uh, if you do that, you'll probably be in pretty good shape. Yeah. What's your website address? Uh, you can find me at powerathletehq.com. Um, or just Google Power Athlete, and I'm easy to find on social media at John Walborn. Okay, you currently taking online clients and all that? Yeah, yeah, I, I do um, on special occasions. I'm not real big into online handholding, uh, but I do have a couple. Uh, I do have one guy that's an ex-offensive lineman who, you know, we're was about up to 350 that I've been working with and he's probably lost about 37 pounds and he's getting super fit. And, you know, it's just um, I, I think sometimes people 
just need to know that somebody's in their corner. And I think what we've done really well at Power Athlete with our online programs and this is to know that like, uh, like you got me, I'm in your corner and I'll, I'll, I'll shoot you straight. And I'm not just, you know, I just didn't happen to come into this. I have a pretty, you know, a fairly decent pedigree for this thing. And I'm, uh, you know, uh, you know, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm the first to tell people, um, you know, all, all of this information and everything that I put out or anything we've ever discussed, I stand on the shoulders of giants. I mean, I, you know, through from George and, you know, Fred Hatfield and, you know, when I wanted to bench 500 pounds in college, I, I uh, my roommate in college had a Westside Barbell video and I ended up calling and talking to Louis Simmons. And Louis helped me with some programming, some heavy dumbbell work and all that. And that was probably the catalyst to get me to bench 500. So, uh, you know, Charlie Francis and this, I mean, Mauro, like all these people, I just had the luxury of, meeting and training and being coached by the world's best people so all right man awesome well we appreciate it a couple things left to say and that is check out marty's weekly column and and podcast raw with marty gallagher at ironcompany.com marty's got a couple of books too you can check out purposeful primitive and strong medicine they're at iron company uh for anybody there's you know everybody's working out at their homes right now uh we're helping a lot of people out right now get uh there's a lot of people getting you know just weight sets and and you know just simple benches and dumbbell sets and kettlebells right now a lot of people are out we've still got a bunch of stuff left so if anybody needs uh some some uh some new gear just hit us up go to ironcompany.com and then we've got uh new jim steel articles they can be found on our articles section What's your latest? What's what? What's your latest article? The last one was on just the different diets I've done and pros and cons, and the next one is how to change up your workouts. I had a, an email from a guy asking because I had mentioned, you know, usually I'm like a five set of six to twelve guy, but then I do a bunch of different rep schemes and stuff, so I'm writing about that, give people some uh, yeah. different stuff to do. And we usually put your stuff up at the uh, midpoint of the month. So look for that in probably about two weeks. Yeah. And then uh, you can also go to Jim's website, BassBarbell.com. And he's got uh, motivational stuff on there, programs, different things, rants, raves, you know, all that stuff. And, uh, and that's it. Yeah. Guys, it's been a great show, John. We really appreciate it, man. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, guys. All right. I'm going to talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thank you. All right. Bye.